A number of years ago, my wife Taryn and I were driving through the countryside a few hours from where we were living at the time, when on the near horizon, uh, the most incredible rock formation appeared. You know, it rose higher than the surrounding landscape, and it had a somewhat flat top near, uh, with near vertical cliffs all around it. You know, as we followed the road, which, uh, which drove around in a wide loop for about 20 minutes, I was just like, mesmerized. You know, I was craning my neck to look at it from every angle, crouching at the wheel to catch different glimpses of it. And I found it just beautiful. You know, I later did research. You know, I found out that it was called Swinburne, uh, the place in the surrounding area and the mountain itself. And there were some sport climbing routes that were established on it. And even though it was you know, hours away, you know, I started trying to figure out ways that we could end up you know, trying to drive past it again in the upcoming months. You know, I so deeply wanted to you know, experience it more fully. You know, I really enjoyed having seen it, you know, but I wanted to actually climb it. You know, the climbing routes were what's called you know, multi-pitch. And at that point, I had yet to do one of those types of climbs. So I started doing research uh, and to, I started setting up the gear in our backyard to practice the anchors and the belay stations that I'd need to know. And so finally, a few months later, you know, we planned a trip that would go past Swinburne. And along with my brother-in-law, uh, Keith, and my sister, Shauna, you know, we ended up taking a day and climbing the eight pitches, you know, almost a thousand feet, you know, up a beautiful route to the summit. It was just a joy. You know, I still think back on it happily. You know, something in me had just felt kind of drawn in appreciation of the beauty of that place. And I couldn't turn away and I wanted to experience it more fully. You know, when I did, you know, I felt like it drew me into some deeper elements of what I love about nature, about physical activity, about some of the close relationships in my life. You know, last week we started a new message series that we're calling A Prayer for All Seasons. You know, it's a bit of an overview of the Psalms, you know, which are songs and poems collected together in a book that you can find, you know, right near like, the, the physical middle of your Bible. And as Tom taught last week, you know, this collection of, you know, 150 Psalms, you know, by different presumed authors, you know, poets, is divided into different sections and themes. One of the recurring themes in the Psalms is praise. Now, maybe you find that there are certain words that are prominent in the Bible that you're not quite sure what to do with. You know, sometimes for how they've been used by the church, you know, how we've experienced them being used, and maybe, you know, for what we now presume them to mean. Now, I think that praise is actually one of those words, and at least I know that it is for me. It's a word that does occur broadly in our culture, you can like you can praise a colleague's work ethic, or you know a new acquaintance says that your mutual friend has been singing your praises. You know, but it's it's not that common, and often it's associated with church culture. You know, in regards specifically to praise for God. So Psalm 96 is one of these songs that's known as a praise psalm, and it gets right to the point. You know, as it opens with the lines. You know, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. You know, depending on our background and perspective on both the church and God, that may strike us in different ways. You know, mid-century Christian thinker and author C.S. Lewis names the fact that we often frame the concept of 
praise within our own experiences of self-importance, which leaves a bad taste in our mouth. You know, he writes, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. Yet we despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus, a picture, at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers threatened to appear in my mind. It was hideously like God saying, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. You know, Lewis found that based on how we often think of praise among our usual contexts, it feels like a self-serving demand from people in positions of power, you know, in a, in a pandering response from everyone around them who wants to get something from them. You know, it's an ugly demand or hideous in Lewis's language and an equally ugly response. In our culture of celebrity worship and financial gain from people's attention on social media, I mean, I'm sure we can all think of examples of how that plays out and how it plays out for us. But this doesn't seem to be what's happening in the Psalms of praise. And part of the reason is because God does not seem to be imposing a demand on the people to worship God externally. Rather, the poets are making responsive statements about what they've experienced with God. You know, in the poetry of these lyrics, they're not always describing the details of what they've experienced, but they're naming some of the impact that it's had on them and the impression that it's left about who God is. Now, it's thought that Psalm 96, uh, which had opened with those lines of praise to God. You know, it may have actually been written in the context of King David and his people, defeating one of their enemies in battle and bringing the Ark of the Covenant uh, back to the city of Jerusalem, since most of the lines from this psalm are found written in uh, the book of First Chronicles in chapter 16, where that story is actually told. You know, the symbol of the Ark I mean, you can picture it, right? The gold chest with the angels stretched across it, and it's in different movies and other places like that, was associated with God in opposition with the gods of their enemies. And in this psalm, the writer states from their vantage point that great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above, uh, he is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You know, in the middle of their own time and place, you know, which was full of violence and conflict. The psalmist is naming ways that they've experienced safety and freedom, and they attribute it to God. You know, the psalmist has experienced a time of celebration, and in this way, they just can't help but shout it out. It's not that God is requiring that they praise. This is what the psalmist is naturally offering. You know, my visceral response to seeing unexpectedly, you know, a place like Swinburne for the first time, it kind of felt like that. You know, I actually think that's what it was. To me, it was praise of the beauty and excitement of what I understand God, uh, what I understand to be God's good creation and the ways that I like to and appreciate experiencing it. The requirement is internal. If you've ever been watching you know, a football game on your own and on seeing a great play, just jumped up and called out, what a catch! You're by yourself. You know, what, what, why do you need to do that? But there's something about that. You know what I mean? It's internal. It's an internal response to something that resonated with you. You know, maybe a novel, you know, with some writing that's so profound that you need to like stop, 
you put the book down, you look around for a moment, you reorient yourself. You know, taste a food that's so good that you need to close your eyes to savor it. You weren't required externally, but somehow you were kind of required internally as your own natural response. You know, to C.S. Lewis, praise is not about God imposing dominance over us. You know, for, to us responding, you know, to try to get something from God. You know, like the human version of praise seeking. You know, rather the invitation is to pay attention to the content of what God is all about. It's an appraisal of who God is. You know, the word praise comes from the same root as the word appraise, you know, which is to assess something's value. You get a house appraised to know what it's actually worth. You know, so something that's worthy of praise is something that has been appraised or assessed to be a value. And when something is good or beautiful in the truest way, an appropriate step is first to actually notice it. And then our first natural response is to actually appreciate it. And we might call it a proportional reaction. It's a reaction that makes sense. Again, if you're a sports fan and it's a great play, your proportional reaction is to jump up and cheer. If you're someone who appreciates Nature, you know, seeing a rare bird or a hidden valley causes you to stop and wonder and just soak it in. If you're a music lover and you know, a long-awaited album from a favorite artist comes out, you might need to carve out an uninterrupted hour in your favorite spot to appreciate it. My reaction to seeing Swinburne felt like my personal proportional response to just an incredible and beautiful place. You know, for the psalmist, a poet, you know, they couldn't help but offer the proportional response of poetic exclamation for what they'd experienced from God. And we all have deep-seated joys like this that are unique to each of us in our own unique ways. You know, and they're so important to who we are and how we're wired, to who we have been created to be. But do we generally take the time to acknowledge that God is at the root of that? You know, as a creator that delights in us, you know, as it says in Psalm 35. You know, this is our act of appraisal, of seeing the goodness and understanding its source. And when a loved one gives you a gift that's just perfect, I mean, do we jump up and you know, walk away in celebration over the gift itself? Or do we you know, look at our loved one in amazement you know, at how well they know us, you know, an appreciation for what they've done, you know, and come to them with a hug and a thank you? you know, that's a proportional reaction to recognizing specific gifts from God, and whatever they may be, including the daily gift of life and all the ways that that plays out. In Psalm 96, the psalmist continues from first declaring their own experience of God to celebrating that experience with others. It says, ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And this is someone, you know, thousands of years ago, thousands of kilometers away in a completely different culture and language using a very specific medium of poetry. But what they're doing here should be very familiar to each of us. When we've received the gift of seeing, you know, true goodness and beauty, we don't generally keep it to ourselves. We don't even want to. But we naturally just invite others to share in it as well. You know, look at that sunset. You know, this wine is amazing. Taste it. You know, I just sent you a link to a great song I just heard. Listen to it. Tell me what you think. Do you remember the story of Chris McCandless? 
It's a true story. And a few years ago, there was a book and later a movie about it called Into the Wild, you know, in which Chris you know, abandoned his car, and he burned his money, and he took off to live as freely as he could, you know, unencumbered by society. You know, he had some amazing adventures over the next few years, ranging across North America. And sadly, he ended up passing away in the Alaskan wilderness. But near him, they found that one of the last things that he wrote was happiness, only real when shared. And I think that there are instances where that may not be exclusively true, but I think that it gets to the heart of this second part of the praise Psalms. You know, the praise as a natural outpouring you know, from ourselves naturally invites other people to share in it as well. You know, look, listen, taste, you know, pay attention to who God is and to what God is doing. In Psalm 34, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is a poet's public recognition of what they've experienced and an invitation for others to experience it as well. And in Psalm 96, what flows from this invitation unlocks how we can lean into experiencing God in ways that result in the proportional response of praise. And then the inspiration to public recognition of what God is doing, inviting others to experience it as well. Although, at first glance, it looks like now is where there's a catch in the, to the whole thing. In Psalm 96, the poet writes, Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and his peoples in his faithfulness. And now here's where it seems to confirm our suspicions that Praise is a, you know, praise me or else type of arrangement. I mean, the invitation previously seemed to be to appraise God, but now the focus is turned back on us. And a focus on judgment doesn't feel like a positive. I mean, one of the key characteristics that Christians are known for is judgmentalism. You know, naming that God is coming to judge the world feels inherently negative for everyone. I mean, I mean maybe even worse, you know, since the psalmist is celebrating God's judgment, you know, maybe this is a moment where you know, someone who feels like an insider to God's favor is actually exulting in punishment for people that they assume to be outsiders to God's favor. You know, what was you know, the C.S. Lewis line? You know, that's a picture that feels both ludicrous and horrible. You know, but the psalmist here tells us that God coming to judge the earth is worth celebrating by everything and everyone, all of creation. God is here to judge. So why would this be universally good news? You know, to the psalmist, it's because of how God evaluates creation. He will judge the world, or he will judge the peoples with equity, and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. You know, the different psalmists paint lots of pictures of God, you know, through these songs and poems. You know, and many of them, including Psalm 96, are thought to be poetic, prophetically pointing to the clearest picture that we would ever be given of God. And that's the person of Jesus. You know, at one point in the New Testament gospel stories of his life, Jesus had a private moment with his disciples in which he invited them to name what people were saying about him before actually asking the disciples themselves, who do you say that I am? 
Jesus invited their appraisal of what they'd seen of him. And the disciples, through Peter, respond, you are the Messiah, you know, meaning the Savior. And some of the stories also include him saying, the Son of the living God. You know, for the disciples, you know, they've seen what Jesus is all about. You know, they name that he is the Messiah, the liberator. You know, that he's about reflecting the heart of God by freeing people who are oppressed, people who are overlooked and vulnerable, you know, disadvantaged and despised. You know, instead, they're now being seen. You know, they're being accompanied and supported and loved. You know, they have seen that love for such people around them is at the heart of everything that the scriptures have told them about God. You know, that these people are actually their neighbors. People who they saw as other are their neighbors. And that love of their neighbors is on par with love of God as the key to life. You know, no, no God is not offering us an ultimatum. Praise God or else. Praise is not required of us in that way. You know, it comes as a proportional reaction to what we experience of God. And what is it that God actually requires? You know, that plays a role in triggering that true experience of God? The prophet Micah writes, what does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Your humility alongside God towards justice and loving mercy for others. Psalm 96 says that God is coming to do God's own appraisal through that lens, equity, righteousness, faithfulness. You know, that means the lifting up of people who have been cast down. You may have seen this visual representation of equity. You know, equity means people being seen, you know, sharing together in goodness and what they have resources and what they have, not keeping it to themselves. It's beyond equality because it's beautifully personal, tailored to what everyone needs. And then in learning to take action in these ways to see someone else and pass on what we have to them in relationship, you know, it becomes a celebration you know, involving everyone, experiencing things together. Here's one translation of this latter part of Psalm 96. It says, get out the message, God rules. He put the world on a firm foundation. He treats everyone fair and square. Let's hear it from the sky with earth joining in and with a huge round of applause from sea, let wilderness turn cartwheels. Animals, come dance, put every tree of the forest in the choir and extravaganza before God as he comes, as he comes to set everything right on earth. Set everything right. Treat everyone fair. You know, praise then is noticing what's good and celebrating it. And this God values humility, justice, and loving mercy. And so our praise is not demanded of us by a prideful and grasping God. Rather, when out of personal responsibility, we respond to these values of God, and we see that this is how God is treating everyone, and so how God invites us to treat everyone. And through Jesus, we know that this carries special emphasis on those who are most different from ourselves and who are most vulnerable. Now, there's a cyclical nature to this entire praise psalm, Psalm 96. You know, first we're invited to a proportional reaction to who God is and what God does. You know, the automatic reaction of praise. You know, second, to inviting others to witness that beauty as well, to the public recognition or sharing of that goodness. 
And third, to participate in the personal responsibility of the nature of God in love for others to judge or appraise others the way that God does in love, which leads us to praise. You know, I may say, like, I don't generally, actually, automatically notice and appraise where God is at work. So it doesn't generally turn into an outpouring of praise for me. You know, we may have, you know, simple examples like me noticing and responding to the beauty of a place like Swinburne, you know, and going deeper to try to experience it more fully in my own way. You know, but I don't experience that every day. But that's why Jesus so specifically and consistently points us in the direction of others. Because that's where we find the invitation to work for equity. You know, where we see God at work in righteousness and faithfulness. You know, making things right and not stopping till it's done. And we will find that that actually speaks to the deepest parts of ourselves. And we will not be able to help but praise because that's good. You know, like it says, set everything right. Treat everyone fair. That resonates with us. C.S. Lewis was disturbed at the thought of God who, out of insecurity, needed our praise, while we, out of grasping to please, grudgingly offer it. You know, the, you know, picture, the picture of praise as a, as a natural response to true, other-centered goodness is something different altogether and more in line with what Lewis eventually concludes. You know, he says, you know, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not, it not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. You know, Psalm 96 says, sing to the Lord a new song. In light of a God who is great and most worthy of praise, who leads us to see the world with a focus on equity, righteousness, and faithfulness, the question for all of us, myself included, is how are we appraising the worth of God today? If we're finding that there is value in who God is and what God does, who God focuses on, then what's our response today? You know, who are the people I'm meant to accompany towards equity? You know, treat rightly with righteousness. And how can we help each other to be faithful in that life? I think that's the heart of Psalm 96 and all of the Psalms of praise. And whether or not any of us are poets, we're invited to live that kind of life of praise. Well, let's pray together. Our Creator, we thank you that what you invite us to is to respond to you and who you are is a God that sees us where we are, that sees the people around us where they are in vulnerability and pain and goodness and joy and that we're invited to respond to each other. That is our act of praise to you. And God, I pray that we would appraise you and see that your ways are good I pray that we would respond with our actual lives, turning our attention and doing the work of working towards equity. And I pray, Jesus, that in doing so, that we would see more of your goodness, appraise it as good, and that we would praise you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.